Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zetner Geology Podcast, Episode 55, The Straight Creek Fault. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you joining us today. We continue talking about exotic terrains here in the Pacific Northwest. Are you tired of the topic? Did you want to get back to things like the Ice Age and Cascade Volcanoes? Okay, well, I feel you. And uh, eventually, I suppose, we'll get back to that sort of thing. But for reasons discussed already, uh, I'm thinking about exotic terrains uh, a fair amount and have been for the last few months. And really, in the next few of these audio podcasts, I'm just kind of getting caught up or catching you up with uh, with what we were doing this fall with the live stream series. And uh, so to record these uh, exotic terrain episodes with you here in audio form, uh, I'm just kind of off the top of my head remembering what I did six weeks ago, maybe even two months ago, and um, without a whole lot of prep. Uh, And that's kind of on purpose, so that I'm only talking about things that must be important. That's the idea, that if I I think back to a certain topic and, and just a few concepts and maps bubble up to the front of my head... Um, then that's that's how we'll do it. I'm also uh, combining a few individual live stream episodes uh, into these uh, kind of condensed versions here. So we'll be getting into the Straight Creek Fault momentarily. I have one more preamble comment, and that is in the last episode, I, I confessed that I really have not thought a whole lot about the podcast platforms and making sure that what I'm doing here with this audio podcast series, not even really sure it's getting out there. Well, it is getting out there. I've heard from a number of you by email. I'd say dozens, actually. And uh, uh, I thank you uh, if you took the time to email and if you also included which platform you use to hear these podcasts. I mean, half the platforms I've never even heard of. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It's still a bit of a mystery to me. But my point is, I, I it's, it's nice to hear specifically from people who are listening to these audio podcasts, which is so different than the live streams, of course. That's video. And, you know, I'm, I, I can see exactly who's with us in real time. This is a little different where I just kind of record something and put it out there, assuming it's going somewhere. And, uh, you know, I can see it on my phone, so I know it's at least getting to my phone. Um, but uh, it's been gratifying and uh, actually energizing to, to hear specific messages from some of you. A few of you actually uh, have never watched anything uh, online. Uh, don't even know what I look like, says one guy. And that's, that's probably for the best. Let's just keep it that way, sir. <laughs> you don't know what I look like? Perfect. All right. There's nowhere to go but down, but once you start seeing things uh, in the flesh. So anyway, let's get into our topic, and thanks again for those that uh, that took the time to email. Let's see, what did I want to do here, Straight Creek Fault? Well, let's start with the fault itself. I don't know how much I've talked about it in the past, uh, like years ago or months ago, um, but it, it it's kind of the next major topic in this series of exotic terrain sessions. So last time we were over in the San Juan Islands, do you recall? So we were on opposite sides of Interstate 5. We're in, in northwestern Washington. 
We're finding uh, four exotic terrains primarily exposed in the San Juan Islands, and there are major thrust faults that separate those four structural NAPs, N-A-P-P-E, a NAP. And then, again, in the last episode, which was episode, what, 54, we followed those four NAPs, those four thrust tracks, those four uh, pizza boxes to the east, uh, underneath Interstate 5, and then we, we, we kept following those guys, those four structural NAPs, into the foothills of the Cascades. And we were kind of in the, in the country surrounding Mount Baker. Mount Baker is an active volcano. It's youthful. It uh, continues to show signs of activity. But surrounding Mount Baker is this um, Mesozoic story, the, these rocks that have been uh, uplifted and exposed, and uh, you can follow those, those four exotic terrains with names like the Belpass Melange or the Nooksack Terrain. Uh, or what I want to start with today, the Eastern Metamorphic Suite, or the Eastern Terrain. So that's where we'll slow down and, and, and break new ground here. So specifically, the Eastern Terrain is a rather large mapped exotic terrain in western Washington. I think first of Mount Shuxon as being made out of this green schist, and being kind of the heart of the eastern metamorphic terrain. Um, but there's other areas as well. We can get all the way over towards Burlington, Washington, and Burlington Hill. And uh, I confessed last time, and I'll confess again today, I, do, I don't know a lot of the country. I don't spend a lot of time in that part of Washington, so I can't give you a whole lot of more um, specific geographic places. But what I want to do is follow those green rocks further east. In other words, it's not just a bunch of foothills. There's some rugged country. And uh, Gary Paul from Darrington, Washington, uh, sent uh, a beautiful, large, framed photograph as a thank you gift uh, that I now have in my office. And it's from the top of Tommy Hoy Peak, up on by the Canadian border, still in Washington. But from the top of Tommy Hoy and looking southeast, he's looking into this country that we're talking about today. And let's get right to the main message. If you look carefully at those exotic terrains in this rugged North Cascades, there is a razor-sharp line on all geologic maps in the North Cascades, an absolutely stunning, perfectly straight north-south line. And that line is a fault, and that fault is the Straight Creek Fault. And it's a significant line because those terrains that you are you know, drawing on your geologic map in western Washington, and you can pick your colors if you like, and you can color up those those different exotic terrains and those bedrock patterns and everything makes a, you know at least a little bit of sense. But boy, you get to that north-south line, that Straight Creek Fault, and then you continue east of the Straight Creek Fault. Are you with me? Uh, the stuff is totally different. You're in a different world. And that's true on a geologic map. It's also true if you're driving on Washington 20. If you're driving on Washington 20 from west to east, and you're crossing from western Washington into eastern Washington, and things are changing 
you know, botanically and climate-wise and everything else because of the rain shadow effect, but you're also at key places along Washington 20, along Interstate 90, along US 2. I don't care what east-west road you're on through northern Washington. The Straight Creek Fault is a line that you're going to cross. And, of course, most travelers are unaware they're crossing this important line. But as soon as they cross that line, the geology changes completely. And before we get to specifics, let me get a couple of general messages across from the Marley Miller, Daryl Cowan, uh, second edition roadside geology book. And I think this was from Daryl specifically. Excuse me for a second. Bijou the cat is in here in the spare bedroom, and he's was a lump in the bed. He's starting to perk up. He's hearing uh, geology. He loves geology. Whatever. Okay. So a couple major themes are, if you're immediately east of the Straight Creek Fault, the rocks exposed are different, and the different the major difference is those are rocks that look very different because they used to be very, very deep in the crust. I said that awkwardly. Let me try again. The exotic terrain bedrock that's exposed generally just to the east of the Straight Creek Fault is deep crustal material, rock, a terrain material that was accreted to North America sent down a geologic elevator, and we'll talk about this probably a lot in the next episode, down more than 20 miles in the crust, all sorts of crazy metamorphic minerals forming in those high-temperature, high-pressure conditions. And then the stuff comes all the way back up to the surface. So those rocks that are immediately east of the Straight Creek Fault are stubborn. They're resistant, they're hard, they're difficult to erode. And because they've been uplifted such an incredible amount, the topography, the topography in eastern Washington, immediately east of the Straight Creek Fault, is rugged, is high country, but made out of this very stubborn, resistant bedrock. Something casually called the crystalline core, and that will be, I suppose, our next episode. So I don't want to give all that stuff away yet. But what I do want to focus on is the fact that the, the fault itself is such a major player in understanding Washington geology, and that's, of course, the theme of this whole podcast series, is that we need to understand why that fault exists. And when did that fault begin? Like, it hasn't always been there, so why did the Straight Creek Fault form to begin with? When was it active? When it was active, what was it doing? Was it making earthquakes? Well, of course it was. All earthquake faults make earthquakes. That's redundant. But the Straight Creek Fault, I have good news for you, in case you're starting to get a little anxious. The Straight Creek Fault has not produced an earthquake in 35 million years. It's been dead for 35 million years. So why not? The age window, the very specific age window for activity on the Straight Creek Fault is 50 to 35 million years ago. Straight Creek Fault did not exist earlier than 50 million years ago. We're sure of that. 
and the Straight Creek Fault stopped making earthquakes 35 million years ago. 50 to 35. So how could you figure that out as a field geologist? Well, let's do the end first. No, let's do this first. This Straight Creek Fault, when it was active, was a major strike-slip fault. I'm sure I've talked about strike-slip faults with you before. Just in case you can't recall, earthquakes are big on strike-slip faults, often deadly. I mean, it's serious business. But the crustal motion on a strike-slip fault is horizontal. It's lateral. It's shifting the crust sideways, if you want to think of it that way. And if you're trying to picture what that looks like, of course we go to the San Andreas Fault in California as the most famous strike-slip fault on the planet. I think that's, maybe that's just North American-centric to say that, but it's certainly famous in the history of plate tectonic discovery, let's say. And I think most of us know that when we do have a big earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, which is a strike-slip fault, um, there's a segment of that San Andreas Fault that ruptures, Maybe the segment is 100 miles long, maybe it's 300 miles long, maybe it's 500 miles long. And in that segment, the crust on the west side of the strike-slip fault shifts northward. Doesn't go up, doesn't go down, goes north compared to the other side of the fault, compared to my more stable interior North America. And that is absolutely true for the Straight Creek Fault as well. So if you have a good visual of the San Andreas Fault and you know that in total there was 300 miles of offset uh, in the last 18 million years, that's true for the San Andreas Fault, by the way. I'll say it again. The San Andreas Fault in total has made you know thousands and thousands of earthquakes. But in total, if you sum up all of that shifting, it was the west side of the fault that shifted north every time and after 18 million years of making those earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault, there's been a total of 300 miles of shifting of the crust on the west side of the fault compared to the east side. And famously, there's, there's distinct granites that used to be north of Los Angeles that are now north of San Francisco. That's a lot of movement. Not all at once. And I, I'm sure we've talked about that multiple times. Well, with the San and excuse me, with the Straight Creek Fault, which is like a northern version of the San Andreas Fault, there's some key differences, but there's also some important similarities. The similarities are same thing with the Straight Creek Fault. Strike slip. Magnitude seven, maybe magnitude seven and a half, each time you have an earthquake on the Straight Creek Fault. Similarities: west side of the fault. Shifts north compared to the east side. Identical. Just exactly what the San Andreas Fault is doing today. And we do have some total offset numbers. What did I just say for San Andreas? Can I do it without screwing it up? San Andreas, a total of 300 miles of offset in 18 million years. Straight Creek Fault, a total of 100 miles in 15 million years. Th uh, 50 to 35 million years ago. That's 15 million years, right? And we have exotic terrains 
we have thrust faults, we have other things that we can use as piercing points to restore the Straight Creek Fault. So in the live stream series, and again, I'm sure it's obnoxious. If, if you've already watched the live streams and I keep saying, well, in the live streams, that, that you know, you've already seen it. Or I'm sure it's obnoxious if you, a couple of you have never seen the live streams and you're like, I don't want to keep hearing about the live streams. I'm, I'm listening to you now. Well, f please forgive me. I'll refer on occasion to the live streams because that's where I have most recently been spending all of my uh, time and energy. And I'm just kind of um, taking advantage of all that work with the live stream and, and using it here as well. So with that episode in a uh, series of episodes in the live streams, I, I kept going back to a map where we had the Straight Creek Fault running right down the middle of this colorful map, and we were using piercing points. Specifically, we used something called the Windy Past Thrust Fault on the east side of the Straight Creek Fault, and the Vetter Thrust, if you're a Pearl Jam fan, uh, there's no relation, but Vetter, spelled like Eddie Vetter's last name. V-E-D-D-E-R, the Vetter Thrust, up in British Columbia. Ned Brown, in particular, from Western Washington University, likes those two structures, the Windy Pass Thrust and the Vetter Thrust, is the same frickin' thing. And the point is, before the Straight Creek Fault appeared 50 million years ago, the Windy Pass Thrust, which is uh, found near Leavenworth, Washington, and the Vetter Thrust, which is north of Mount Shuction, shall we say, in southern British Columbia. Sorry, BC fans, I don't know the geography up there very well. Th that's the same fault. That's the same thrust fault, which is basically just visualize it as an east-west thrust fault. Part of the pizza box story, part of the naps, I might add. The thrust stacks, it's just one of the thrust faults. But it's exposed on both sides of the Straight Creek Fault, and if you agree with Ned and others that that's the same fault, it's now separated by 100 miles. The Vetter thrust on the western side of the Straight Creek Fault has been shifted north 100 miles compared to what's on the east side. But you can do more than just use thrust faults as piercing points. You can use rock units as well. And that's really what I want to get into now for the last, or I don't know, the second half of this little episode. The Easton Metamorphic Suite, which is an interesting collection of mostly green-colored rocks, metamorphic rocks by the name of green schist. You've heard of schist. Well, there's schists that have a green tinge to them, and there's schists that have a blue tinge to them. So you can have blue schists, you can have green schists. And both are metamorphic rocks that form at high pressures, but relatively low temperatures compared to other metamorphic rocks. Before I lose my train of thought here, those green schists and blue schists in western Washington... If you then follow them across this razor-sharp line into eastern Washington, you're like, where are they? Where did those blue schists and green schists go? In other words, where did the eastern terrain go? I, I had it in northern Washington up by Mount Shuxon, but if I go immediately east of Mount Shuxon, I cross the Straight Creek Fault and I'm into that crystalline core junk, I, I've lost the green rocks. Where did they go? Well, you have to go south. I don't know if you're following me now. I don't know if you're 
a visual person like I am, quite often I have to, you know, if I read a scientific paper, you know, I'm lost the first three times, then I kind of get a couple of sentences locked into my head, but then I keep reading and then that all gets muddled. For me personally, it only is ready to be used. It's only helpful to me and and uh, I can only visualize it very clearly if I draw it out for myself, quite often with different colored pens. And so in this case, um, you can do what you want, man. But if I'm in your position right now and I'm listening to this guy yammering about the Straight Creek Fault and I keep talking west and east and north and this and thrust fault and... Uh, I get to a point where the words are just in a blender in my head and, and, I, and I just lose all mojo. So for me, I know we're all different, mercifully, but for me, it only works if I can just start drawing it out. And, I, you know, if I, if I was in your position and, and I was really serious about this, I'd go back and listen again, you know, and I'd draw a little bit more out. But if I was drawing right now, and I'm doing it kind of a pantomiming drawing on this... Uh, this old desk I've had since 1983. Uh, it's all warped and stained, but it's still an old friend of mine. Uh, I'd have this north-south line. I'd have the east-west Vetter thrust on the west side of the Straight Creek Fault in British Columbia. I'd bring it right over to the Straight Creek Fault and stop it. I'm trying to describe my, my little clown show with my, my fingers on my uh, desktop here, my physical desktop. And then I want to continue that thrust fault on the east side of the Straight Creek Fault. Well, I got to jump down into Washington. I got to jump down a hundred miles south on this razor sharp Straight Creek Fault, which is called the Fraser Fault, by the way, in British Columbia. Same thing. And then here I am in central Washington. Oh shit, central Washington. Yeah, that's oh, sorry, Patrick. That's that's where Ellensburg is. Yes, yes. This Straight Creek Fault is very close to my house, about 40 miles away, near a town called, you guessed it, Easton, Washington. Easton, Washington, where the Straight Creek Fault is coming right through the Mesozoic bedrock, the little town, the little logging town of Easton, Washington. That's why it's called the Easton terrain or the eastern metamorphic suite. My point is that windy pass thrust is just north of Ellensburg, so I continue that east-west trending windy pass thrust on the east side of the Straight Creek Fault. Don't know if that helped. Let's continue. The green rocks of the eastern metamorphic suite are south of the windy pass and south of the Vetter. So there's an, a 100-mile offset of these green metamorphic rocks of the eastern metamorphic suite, the green schists and the blue schists. Let me just do a little bit more on the origin of those green rocks, but that's not the main focus of this episode. With the live stream series, I eventually called in a guest. I only had one guest the whole fall. I had 26 shows, A to Z, I think it was show O, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I just called it Green Rocks, and I had a guest. And the guest was a colleague who, who is the department chair. Uh, he's the neighbor, lives a block away. Chris Mattinson is his name. And I needed help from an expert who knew details of rocks and minerals 
um, just in general, but specifically in, in central Washington, and Chris is a leader in that sort of thing nationally. And he did a really nice job. I collected all the green rocks that I had in my backyard, and he brought a few special samples. And uh, if you're a, a rock collector or a, a jade hunter or anything related to green rocks, you've always just you know gotten whatever sort of value out of green rocks, whether it's actual value monetarily or spiritual value or whatever, you might enjoy that green rocks live stream. But I needed help because before Chris's visit, all I knew is that green rocks came from the ocean. That's all I could say. So if I had a green schist or a blue schist or serpentinite or jade or ophiolites or peridotites, um, all I could say is that it was ocean stuff. And to be honest, I don't know if I can give you much more detail now because Chris had a bunch of wonderful detail. You know, and he was talking directly into the little iPhone camera as well and did a, did a really nice job. Um, much of it was over my head, but it seemed to work at the time. And my point here is that the green schist and the blue schist are typically a subduction zone rock. Uh, to get those really high pressures but relatively low temperatures, you need to be in an accretionary wedge. You need to be in a place where you're scraping off a bunch of material off the ocean floor and you're packing that original basalt and maybe some sediment into that wedge, and you keep increasing the temperatures, and you get into these blue and green schist um, minerals that form. And if you've never seen photographs of blue schist or green schist, I recommend it right now or sometime soon. Just Google, type in blue schist and get in, into Google and then hit images, and you'll see some very beautiful metamorphic rocks with these beautiful graceful swirls within them and there's 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 trauma recorded in those rocks but the trauma is really from just the creation of the rock it's not necessarily from all sorts of folding and faulting afterwards okay back to the topic of the fault this very distinctive looking i'll just say green rocks green rocks of the eastern terrain, if you look at a geologic map of Washington, there's a hell of a lot of it, sorry Patrick, west of the Strait Creek Fault in northern Washington, but east of the Strait Creek Fault in central Washington, and even more specifically, uh, south of Interstate 90. So if we get into my neighborhood now, between Ellensburg and Easton, so if you happen to know that drive, some of you who are listening from the Northwest, you know Interstate 90. It crosses Snoqualmie Pass. It's a very busy freeway. It's busy even this time of year. And if we're on the Interstate, uh, Interstate 90 between Ellensburg and Easton, there's a town called Cleellum. There's another little gathering called uh, Elk Heights. Um, and the point is, there's a lot of geology right between those, those two locations, Ellensburg and Easton. And I'm saying that you have to go south of Cleellum. You have to go south of the freeway to find little isolated exposures of the Easton terrain. Because we're on the east side of the Straight Creek Fault. 
because of that offset, because of that 15 million years worth of earthquake activity in that total of 100 miles of offset. So you're hearing me right. I think you heard me, but I'll say it a little bit more clearly. Much of the bedrock of western Washington used to be 100 miles south of where it is now. That's worth hammering a couple other ways. Oh, you live in Bellingham, Washington. Okay, what's the latitude? Oh, yeah, okay, you're almost up to 49 degrees north, huh? What's the latitude of Bellingham? Didn't do my homework. Probably 48 degrees, 35 minutes north or something like that. Well, I'm saying that if you go back 50 million years and you try to find Bellingham on a map, it's 100 miles further south. Everything in western Washington has been moved 100 miles north of where it was on the Straight Creek Fault. That's pretty cool, man. It didn't happen overnight. Just like the San Andreas Fault in California, it happens one earthquake at a time. An average of, I use the number 20, an average of 20 feet of northward movement of the crust west of the fault compared to the crust east of the fault. All right. A couple final thoughts with the Straight Creek Fault. How do we know it started? How do we know it ended? Well, it ended 35 million years ago, and that's an easy answer because there are these plutons, these big blobs of granite, and it's liquid molten material, same thing, and then you solidify, you lose the heat of that liquid blob, and it becomes a plutonic igneous rock. And we now have ways to pull some key minerals out of that plutonic igneous rock, analyze it chemistry, chemically, and figure out exactly when that liquid turned to solid. In other words, how old is the igneous rock that formed in a magma chamber? Well, there's something called the Chelowak Basilith, which I don't know very much about, but I'm quite confident that in 2021 I'll be back to the live streams at some point, and I'm almost sure that I'm going to be talking about Washington in the most recent 50 million years, including something like the Chelowak Basilith, but the point today is that the Chelowak Basilith is a big blob of former liquid magma that's now solid, and it ate its way up through both sides of the Straight Creek Fault. Different way to say it. You invaded the Straight Creek Fault from below with a bunch of liquid magma. I'm now doing an obscene gesture with my right hand as it kind of works its way from uh, bottom to top through the air. I'll let you fill in the details there. But that magma invaded bedrock on both sides of the Straight Creek Fault, and that, that Chilliwack Batholith has not been broken, has not been cut in half, and the Chilliwack Batholith has not been shifted north, 20 feet each earthquake, compared to the east half of the Chilliwack Basilith. The Chilliwack Basilith in northern Washington has not been broken at all by the Straight Creek Fault, and therefore we know, just using basic relative age dating, that there's been no earthquake action on the Straight Creek Fault in 35 million years, because it hasn't broken, hasn't shifted, hasn't disrupted this 35 million year old Chilliwack Basilith. Got it? So those that are 
really worked himself into a tizzy by hearing earthquake discussions. They're like, are you sure? I, I think I really want to worry about this one. Well, you go ahead. If, you, if it makes you feel better, weirdly, to worry about the Straight Creek Fault and how much risk you're at, I don't mean to belittle this, but some people just get off on this sort of anxiety. I guess, go ahead, work up a scenario for yourself. But if we're looking at the geology of the situation with a, with a, a sober mind and a, and a sober face, what? There's been zero seismic activity on the Straight Creek Fault in 35 million years because of that relationship between the Chilliwack Basilith and the Straight Creek Fault. Let's go to the other end of it, meaning the earliest days of the Straight Creek Fault. Why did it form? What, what's so special about 50 million years ago? Well, I'm flashing forward a little bit to a future episode of this series, but we will talk about something called Silesia, which was the last exotic terrain to add to the Pacific Northwest. And we have a very specific date now for when Silesia, which was a huge... Um, pile of basalt off the ocean floor when that large igneous province accreted to the Pacific Northwest. Gets the date. 50 million years, bro. Ma'am, whatever. Brosette. And the uh, accretion of that large igneous province, Silesia, uh, came in on an ocean plate that did not hit the Pacific Northwest head-on. It was not an east-west collision. Instead, we're quite confident that Silesia came from the southwest, meaning the ocean plate that brought Silesia to the Pacific Northwest was moving to the northeast. Is this working for your brain? We're back to directions again. If you bring in a huge Icelandic mass of material and you bring it from southwest to northeast, and you have it start to accrete to the Pacific Northwest 50 million years ago, that's the biggest message I have to you for strike-slip faults existing at all. Strike-slip faults exist because of oblique collisions, because of two tectonic plates dealing with each other, but it's not a head-on collision. It's not an east-west collision or a north-south collision. Instead, you're kind of side-swiping the western margin of North America from the southwest towards the northeast, and you kickstart strike-slip faults like the Straight Creek Fault. And suddenly, before you know it, you have the western side of the Straight Creek Fault moving north each time you have a big earthquake because of that accretion story on the biggest sense. Okay. I think I'll finish this episode in hopefully two minutes time to just comment that it's quite difficult to follow the Straight Creek Fault to the south. Like south of Cleelum, you can follow the Straight Creek Fault for a little while because you have little knobs of eastern, excuse me, eastern uh, terrain uh, and Kalielum Ridge, just south of Kalielum, uh, Menashtash, uh, Inlier, which is a little bit further south. I may have talked about these in past audio podcasts, can't remember. I think I did. 
And one of the biggest uh, inliers or kind of isolated windows of where we have Mesozoic bedrock in central Washington is called the Rimrock Lake Inlier, which is between Yakima and, and, uh, and uh, White Pass. And most geologists now are, are running the Straight Creek Fault to the east of Rimrock. In other words, they view, they're not exactly sure, but they're connecting some dots, and they're assuming that the north-south trending Straight Creek Fault, which we had right there at uh, Lake Cachis uh, at Easton, uh, or Cachilis, uh, Cachis, Cachis, if we follow Straight Creek Fault south, uh, we're going to run it to the east of the Rimrock Lake Inlier. Hope that works for your mental map. And how far, how much further south does that Straight Creek Fault go? It's hard to imagine a fault like that just stopping. Does it merge into some other major structure? It's very difficult because we're in flood basalt country if we're that far south in Washington. And all of this Mesozoic story, including the Straight Creek Fault, which is offsetting Mesozoic bedrock, but actually is an early Cenozoic story. It's all buried. It's all buried by these incredible flood basalts collectively called the Columbia River Basalt Group. So we will never know. I rarely say that, but it seems impossible that we'll ever really know what the exotic terrain bedrock and therefore what some of these major structures look like in southern Washington, in northern Oregon, because it's been buried by so much GD basalt, just incredible amount, three miles thick in many places. So we take advantage of the windows of opportunity that we do have in life and also as field mappers, and there is exposure of the Straight Creek Fault through the North Cascades of Washington, and of course the Fraser Fault, where the Fraser River is actually following this Straight Creek Fault, even though this, I'm sorry, I can't stop, even though this, this Fraser Fault, also known as the Straight Creek Fault, even though that fault's been dead for 35 million years, you still have a modern stretch of the Fraser River near Hope, British Columbia. I can't remember off the top of my head. Just Google Hope, British Columbia, and look at the Fraser River, and therefore look at the Trans-Canadian Highway, by the way. Is that Highway 1? Uh, there's a st stretch of that Highway 1 that's perfectly north-south, and it's following the Straight Creek Fault. Isn't that amazing? Something that's been dead for 35 million years is still controlling, um, quote-unquote, modern uh, processes like the course of a river. I need to learn more about that. That's really interesting to me. I haven't thought about that totally till right now. So there's a major impact of this Straight Creek Fault action uh, here in Washington and British Columbia, most of it from the Dark Ages, but a little bit of modern river activity still etching out and showing us where that old structure uh, is. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode. Uh, the cat is back sleeping again. Everything is uh, hunky-dory here, and I hope it's hunky-dory in your world, too. Did not plan on using the phrase hunky-dory, but I think it just happened three times in the last 30 seconds. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode in the Straight Creek Fault. I love you. 
and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.